Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Howdy, partner. Howdy. Well, we we had an exciting day yesterday. We did. It was originally going to be taking some of the Reasons to be Cheerful listeners for Nando's, and it, it sort of spiraled from there, really, didn't it? Yep. Spiraled is one way of putting it. It was an upward spiral, not yes, a downward spiral. Yes. We ended up doing a focus group. Yes. At Universal Music, who are friends of ours, lent us a their boardroom, yeah, with their enormous shiny boardroom table, had nice views, uh, beautiful views over over London, and we we gathered eight reasons to be cheerful listeners who were um, all lovely. They were fantastic, yeah. weren't they? I was a bit scared because it being at this this record company, they told us a story about a famous recording artist who sat in on a focus group. Sometimes when they do these things, they have smoked glass like a mirror, you're hiding behind it. So this particular artist was listening to the general public give opinions on them, and they were so enraged that they burst into the focus group and borderline assaulted a member of the public. I don't think you should be talking about in that way then <laughs> i can't we can't reveal that can we no. fortunately i'm so afraid of confrontation that there was no danger of me doing that generally when politicians go to those focus groups with two-way glasses it's generally a bad experience have you them. had experience of that i haven't although i did have sat in a lot of focus groups in my time less about me but i mostly used to get reports from polling and focus groups but one labor politician went along to one of these groups and there was about a bunch of voters who were, I think they were trying to start between Tories and Labour, and they said some pretty disobliging things about this individual, and he basically stormed out and said they're just a bunch of Tories. So if you are doing, if you're having polling on yourself reported back to you, how heavily redacted is it? Very heavily redacted right. in my case, I think. <laughs> But they were a lovely bunch of people. They were. We had a nice time. Uh, some of the things we found out. Uh, I was keeping a toll of how many people had beards in the room. Out of the eight people, three of them had beards. Mm, swing to the beardies. Yeah. Uh, just one pair of glasses, though. Interesting. Yeah, what else? Swing away it? from myopics. <laughs> Um, most people are listening to the podcast whilst commuting either to work or to their studies. But people also listening to it whilst cooking. Yeah. And during bath time, we're a bath time treat for some of our listeners. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you say interesting, but I, th- I can hear you stifling a yawn there. Nope. Um, Do you want to know some of the other, other podcasts that they listen to? That, uh, yes. As ours? No Such Thing as a Fish by the QI Elves. That seemed to be quite a popular one. As did My Dad Wrote a Porno. And Table Manners with Jesse Ware and her mum. So the reason I was pausing was it made me think of this these two people called Amos Tversky and Danny, Daniel Kahneman, who were these two behavioral economists. And there's this brilliant book by Michael Lewis called The Undoing Project. And they have this thing called the law of small numbers. And this law of small numbers is defined as judgmental bias, which occurs when it's assumed that the characteristics of a sample population can be estimated from a small number of observations or data points. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to piss on your chips. <laughs> 
Well, well, maybe, maybe you will give no credence to this final thing that I was going to tell I, you. I, they were all lovely. They were all lovely. I'm just sort of... <laughs> but you're saying your opinions count for nothing. No, no, I wasn't <laughs> saying too that. small a sample size. You're saying it was a waste of hours and everybody else's time. It's such an interesting subject, this law of small numbers, because it, there's this term in basketball called the hot hand, and it's sort of like people are on form, and they kind of show that the hot hand doesn't really exist. It's just a sort of random set of things that happen. Anyway, blah, blah. Is your hand hot? No. You've got something to tell us? Where's it been? It's a metaphorical expression. <laughs> no, so so the, the, the one bit of criticism that came out of the focus group that I thought I should put to yeah, you... Yeah, we should definitely apply is... the law of small numbers to this. Yeah. <laughs> so so one of our listeners, her husband, I got the impression, un, unlike her, is quite a staunch conservative. Yes. And it really gets his back up yes. every time we refer to the, yes. the conservatives. Yes. As uh, as Tories, 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 Tories. Okay, okay. I promise you, husband of our very nice focus group participant, never again, never again on the podcast. What? What? Never again? That I'll say, Tories. You said again? No, I just, I just got it out. I'm just getting it out of my system. Okay, right. It's gone now. Okay. I think it's a fair point, actually. Okay, well there we go. Yeah, despite, We've le- learning despite the law of it doesn't mean numbers. I won't say Tories outside the podcast. Just it's to be clear. Again. Oh, sorry, well, it doesn't mean I won't say that word <laughs> outside the podcast, but inside the podcast because I do often think about our conservative listeners, and they are incredibly valued. And you know, I don't come from that political persuasion, but I really, we really value them, like we value all our listeners. But I value you particularly. Uh, so I hear you. Okay, good. That's addressed. Good. Is your hand cooled down? Oh. <laughs> On to this week's podcast. Oh, I'm really excited about this week's podcast because it is about a movement and an idea called divestment. And it's around climate change. And it's around this idea that pension funds, people who hold wealth should be disinvesting or divesting from fossil fuel companies as a way to change behavior and hasten the very very urgent transition away from fossil fuels towards renewable forms of energy and so on and the church of england has done a big push on this their their pension fund they've persuaded the mining company glencore uh to change its behavior we're going to be hearing from them we're going to be hearing from a fantastic woman catherine howarth who runs uh, something called share action which has also been at the forefront of this campaign and from a representative from the US, from an organization called 350.org, that I think were the originators of the whole divestment campaign, which is a huge global campaign now. And and if that wasn't exciting enough, we're going to be learning to beatbox. Oh, we love Beardy Man. We are joined by beatboxer, performing artist, sensation, Beardy Man. Yeah. What's your reason to be cheerful this week? So my reason to be cheerful is that I sort of took the podcast on the road, not in the sense of a live show, which I didn't tell you about, although that would have obviously been entirely characteristic. Uh, but Christoph Gray, who we had on a great episode a few episodes ago about public space, uh, my friend who's an architect, uh, runs this thing called Studio Gray West, which is a big architect firm. He came up to Doncaster to talk to people on the council and others about public space, what advice he could offer. Uh, he did it just out of the goodness of his heart. And then we came back on uh, the train together. And, well, first of all, we had two excited listeners who came up to us. They thought Christophe was you. Oh, he's a very stylish man. He is an extremely stylish yeah. Frenchman. I'll I mean, like, that. way, way stylish more something. I don't get what you're implying. <laughs> uh, and and we, we had these two lovely young people who came up, young people, uh, who came up <laughs> to talk to us, one of whom works for BBC iPlayer. 
She's unusual, but she's a female software engineer. Uh, she's got a big team of 16 that she works in. I think she's the only woman in that team. Her boyfriend works at B- on the BBC Sport app. We then had a long discussion about TARDIS tennis. Do you remember TARDIS tennis? It was this thing they released for like Wimbledon one year. You could play this like, you know, tennis game, blah, blah, blah. It was great. And they were lovely. It cheered me up. What's yours? I've had a quiet week this week. I mean, a couple of little things. I made some very nice spiced potato cakes for brunch on Sunday. Does that count? I watched that documentary, Three Identical Strangers. Have you heard about it? I have heard about it. I mean, it it, it takes quite a dark yeah. turn, but at the beginning, it's, you know, an extraordinary story about these three men of university age who discover that they're triplets and they were separated at birth and uh, adopted through this particular adoption agency. But sort of before it takes a, a, a turn for the darker, there's a bit where they are living like kings in new york city and they open their own restaurant called triplets wow and it just struck me as so odd that in our lifetime people were queuing around the block to go to a restaurant just because of the novelty of it being run by triplets no it closed down in uh, the year 2000 but you can still buy the mugs on ebay it's my birthday soon when is your birthday 20th of april shit better not miss it (laughs) Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now by Adam Matthews, who's Director of Ethics and Engagement for the Church of England Pensions Board, and he joins us uh, on the phone from Dublin. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Just tell us a little bit about how the Church of England has come to be involved in this whole question of shareholder engagement on climate change. Well, we're, we're a shareholder in many companies. Um, the Church of England Pensions Board is um, a £2.5 billion pension fund for the clergy, retired clergy, and also for people that work for the church. And so um, we obviously have a responsibility to provide them with a pension. And as a result, we're invested in many companies. But we take our sort of responsibility very seriously that we don't just invest in them for the return. We actually want to ensure that the companies we're invested in are actually contributing positively to wider society. And obviously, issues like climate change are extremely important to us. So we engage, we use our position as a shareholder, we have various rights as a shareholder, and uh, we exercise those rights. And that can be done in a number of ways, from filing shareholder resolutions, from intervening at company AGMs, and equally just from the dialogue we have with with the company boards. So we use a variety of measures, and um, we sort of work with other investors as well to form sort of coalitions to maximise the impacts that we're trying to have. And I think I'm right in saying that the Church of England Synod passed a resolution around the Paris Climate Change Agreement and the desire to invest in companies that were acting consistently with that. Is that right? Yes. So last year, the Synod, the the Church Parliament, uh, basically reviewed our work on climate change and and in particular how we're engaging. And it very much sort of backed the approach that we're taking, which is that we are engaging. But we're also very clear with companies that we have an expectation that they need to align their businesses to the Paris Agreement. And so they reinforce that commitment and companies that are not aligning with with the Paris Agreement by 2020, um, and in particular if they haven't aligned on a trajectory to below two degrees by 2023, there will be candidates for us to disinvest from. So obviously that still gives us a bit of time to conduct our engagement, but it's an engagement with a focus. And we've also created a tool 
school, which sort of is an independent academic tool at the London School of Economics called the Transition Pathway Initiative, which is going to be the base upon which we assess whether companies are making the progress we need them to or not. And that was very much the sort of position Sinner took that they welcomed the creation Transition Pathway Initiative, which is now backed by investors with $14 trillion um, in assets that they manage, and we'll be using that sort of independent source to determine if companies are moving in the right direction. And tell us a little bit about, in practice, what the effects of your uh, investor voice has been. I, I know it's, it starts with Shell, and then recently the church was involved in a wider campaign around Glencore. For the first time, you've got a level of coordination between investors that's, that's never happened before. There's, there's an enormous sort of collective focus that we need to work together across the sort of investment industry. Um, and so you've got collaborations going between all the global investor networks. And you've got sort of like enormous numbers, like $34 trillion now are collaborating in, in global um, engagement with, with companies. And that in itself is having an enormous impact in terms of focusing the major emitting companies on the sort of demands of, of their investor base. I led the negotiations with the Dutch counterparts uh, with Shell and uh, just before the, the UN climate conference in Poland last year, we, we had the first agreement with an oil and gas company and their long-term shareholders that basically committed them to aligning their business towards Paris agreeing with their investors that they're going to seek to reduce the carbon intensity of their impact. They've set targets covering all of those emissions. They're also linking it to their pay of their senior executives. And at the same time, they are um, being absolutely transparent in terms of how they're actually going to measure their performance and be able to communicate that with shareholders. And lastly, and probably hugely significantly, they're also committed to review all their lobbying um, and funding of trade associations and lobby bodies, which are having a very disproportionate impact on the sort of whole global climate debate. So my sense is that we're at an absolute key moment where you've got investors collaborating globally. You've got independent tools um, that investors have created in academic institutions, such as the Transition Pathway Initiative, and now you're getting the first companies starting to make very credible, serious commitments that is changing their business models. Is it enough? I don't yet know, but it's um, definitely um, starting to see some significant movement. That was my next question, actually. You anticipated it, which is whether it's enough. I mean, in other words, some of our listeners will think, yeah, but this is Shell. They continue to want to produce oil and gas for decades ahead. You know, the IPCC says we've got 10 years to really, you know, turn these things around. How would you respond to that? Well, I, I mean, I think that's an absolutely legitimate question. And I think we're all trying to understand exactly what, what is going to be enough. I think increasingly um, time is, is ever against us. But the kind of commitment that Shell's come out with uh, is, is a credible one in the sense that they are moving from oil to gas. Gas does have a role in the transition over the coming decades. But equally, they're looking at how they can expand their activities and they are investing in low-carbon battery technologies or uh, in other renewables. And so they're looking, in effect, to sort of become an energy producer um, of green energy as well as um, of gas. And that's a sort of credible path that you can see an oil and gas company taking. Now, the proof is going to be very much in, in the delivery of this. And we've built in key points in the coming years to review um, the ambition and how this sits with 
with the objectives of the climate process in, in, in the UN. But at the same time, you're going to see other approaches emerge as well from other companies where, in effect, they're probably just going to have to stop looking to produce more, more oil. And I think that you'll see these approaches emerge in, in, in the coming sort of months and years um, as really they all grapple with the pressure that they're now under from, from their investor community. And we're obviously all looking and asking, is it enough? And I think we've got some key, key points at which we'll be um, taking a judgment on that. And you've also been involved in the wider push on Glencore, Australia's largest miner in terms of the amount of coal it produces. And they've recently made an agreement about limiting their production. One Australian coalition minister accused, quote, latte sipping greens. That's you, I think. Uh, I'm not accusing you of being a latte sipping green or or complimenting you with that. But but I think they're talking about organisations like the Church of England Pension Fund that were part of this Climate Action 100 Plus. Is that an important milestone, the Glencore decision? Yeah, no, I, I mean, look, you've got the, one of the largest coal producers in the world for the first time uh, making a commitment that they don't see um, increased coal production um, as as the sort of the future path for their coal business. Now, that in and of itself is a hugely significant message, and it's obviously generated the reaction it has among some of those that are very pro-coal. And you have an enormously strong pro-coal lobby in parts of Australia that's had a very significant influence upon the political system there. Glencore have been the first coal company to make that commitment. There's a question in terms of how this gets delivered, and obviously we are keen to sort of follow through on on, on the agreement that they've reached. Um, we are talking with other mining companies. I, I also are involved in discussions with Anglo American, which is obviously the UK, uh, one of the sort of largest coal um, producers that's listed in the UK, and we're talking about basically when they see their coal production being reduced. And and I think all of these companies are under that kind of pressure. We're getting these commitments. We're putting these into a framework to assess if they're good enough. And then we're basically monitoring the companies with a view to putting further pressure if they aren't being delivered in a time frame that's consistent with what we need to achieve globally. So it was significant. um, And I think it's the beginning of a a very significant shift away from coal by some of the major players. One last question. We have a thing on the podcast called the the Jeffocracy, where I, Jeff, am appointed supreme ruler, but I'm very hands off. Uh, I'm trying to think what position (laughs) we might give you in the administration, because I'd, I'd always intended church and state to be quite separate um but if if we um if we made you maybe minister for investments or pensions what what is the first thing that government could be doing better in this area investors and pension funds have enormous power and it's and often it's an unrealized power and a power that i don't think if they do know they've got it many have used and i think what you're seeing is a giant that is awakening in the investment sector that is going to drive change alongside what governments need to do. Governments can help by enabling investors to invest regulation, requirements on companies to disclose strategies in the way that Shell have. They've played a very important role, and the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, has played an extremely important role in sort of saying that there's a whole heap of public disclosure companies have got to make. It didn't go far enough in terms of requiring companies to set targets, But it did set a trend here that I think investors have been enabled to sort of push in the way that we are beginning to. So my my sense is that we actually have an enormous amount of power 
We need, obviously, government regulation and laws to align to the Paris Agreement because where they currently are is just around the three degrees mark. So there does need to be more regulation, and that ultimately does drive a lot of performance in, in, in key sectors such as the car industry, electric utilities. But equally, I'm quite conscious that we do have the power as, as it stands. We just need to use it and mobilise it. Adam Matthews, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So we're very pleased to speak now to Yossi Caden, who is Global Senior Divestment Campaigner at 350.org. Yossi, thank you so much for joining us. I wondered if, first of all, you could talk to us a little bit about 350.org and the history of divestment campaigning. The divestment campaign started in 2012 and it was kicked by Bill McKibbin, who went through a, a big sort of, uh, I would say, bus tour in, in the U.S. 300 different educational institutions he appeared and gave speeches. And there was a big crowd of students that were eager to hear him to start the divestment campaign, uh, which, you know, since then become bigger and bigger until until today, which is, you know, become a very significant uh, campaign, I think. One of the most successful climate change campaign uh, that happened in the last decade or so. And can you talk us a little bit of, about the work of those campaigns and, and what has been achieved? Just going back to the reasons of these campaigns, I mean, like, it all started with a group of people, economists, who uh, look at the shares of fossil fuel companies and, you know, fossil fuel companies as part of their disclosure to their shareholders have to say how much reserve, proven reserve of fossil fuels they have. So these economists uh, say, well, let's check how much uh, they declare uh, on their reserves and try to uh, bring that all together. And they found a a very interesting thing that the amount of proven reserve that those fossil fuel companies are uh, declaring, you know, in the stock exchange and to their shareholders, it's bigger five times than we allow to burn if we want to keep the climate under two degrees, which is, you know, cause a few issues. One is that, you know, some of this money and shareholders that putting this money are basically putting their money on something that may not be able to happen. So if we want to keep the climate, um, and the second, which is obviously, if you are putting your money into that, you're you're doing something that it's immoral because it's definitely sort of you give hand to uh, to extract those reserves that shouldn't be extracted. So that was the rationale. And as I said, I mean, like at the beginning, it was mostly universities. So students in different universities organized themselves and asked the university as, you know, institution who basically teach the science and say that the science saying that we can't really burn this amount of fossil fuels and demand their universities to uh, withdraw their uh, investments that they have, uh, endowment mostly, from fossil fuels. It's important to understand that the divestment campaign, like any other divestment campaign, didn't start because we thought that we can bankrupt the fossil fuel industry. That wasn't the case. You know, even if it's true, uh, we thought at the beginning, I mean, like the thinking was that that will take too much time and we don't have that time, I mean, to bankrupt. And especially when you talk about, you know, oil company, you're talking about companies that have lots of liquidations and assets on their own. So that's probably not going to happen very fast. So the idea was uh, to use the divestment as a political tool to delegitimize the fossil fuel industry 
uh, and to create sort of this political uh, space for politicians to come on board and regulate the in- industry uh, to what it should be. Yossi, tell us, what is the balance uh, or the interaction of divestment and shareholder activism demanding change? Are these two sides of the same coin in your view or are they opponents? I wouldn't say that they're opponents. I mean, like, um, yeah, let's say that if you look at the history and let's talk about fossil fuel companies because shareholders activism had its own space and many times it's working, you know, it's, you know, one of the best strategies that can work. Uh, especially if you have a company that basically you say, we want you to change your policy. So, for example, let's say forest company, you say that we don't want you to source any more old growth. You want me, we want you to sort of go to other and source from other places. Then shareholders uh, resolutions can be very effective because you can intervene, you can make your demands. And if you have enough shareholders that come on board, your demand can be very strong. The problem when it comes to fossil fuel companies, it's a bit different because, you know, essentially what we ask them is to close their businesses in a couple of years. So it's not about, you know, change your practices or do this thing or another. We say basically, I mean, like we ask you for, you know, a phase out plan. It's a suicide in terms of their stock markets. They will, you know, go to zero and even negative in no time. It was a path that few organizations like the Church of England, for example, choose to go when they put shareholder resolutions. I mean, like, and they got something. I mean, like, you know, they got Exxon to say, we are going to disclose our carbon emissions, etc., etc. But from that point to say, we are actually phasing out our oil and, you know, not going to look for another reserves and etc., that's still really far and uh, I, I doubt if if that's sort of compatible with the amount of time that we have uh, to avert any climate disaster. So when you hear about organizations like uh, Climate Action 100 Plus, which controls these tens of trillions of dollars around the world, they are, as I understand it, some combination of shareholder activism with the threat of divestment. Yeah. And you think there's a place for that, Yes. Yeah, that's that's the other side. I mean, like, I think when you come to a company and say, you know, we want you to produce a plan that it's compatible with the uh, Paris Agreement uh, and the two degrees. And if you're not going to do that by the end of 2020 or so, we are actually going to divest. That's a complete uh, legitimate you know, if you put a plan that basically said what actually you need to do in order to uh, to comply with the Paris Agreement, this is something that will cause, you know, each one of these corporation fossil fuel companies to, as I said, I mean, like basically decide on a phase out in, in this sort of time frame, this or never. So shareholder resolutions that actually put that limit and say we will divest is a good solution. I mean, like when they put that uh, time target in, in place. And where does your campaign go next, Jossie? I think you've implied that this began in a few colleges in America and has become a global movement. Where do you see it going in the in the urgent months and years ahead? Looking at the political sphere and uh, I, I wouldn't say losing hope, but uh, uh, seeing that they're moving way too slow than what we that we need. I mean, like we are in a definitely sort of an urgent situation. And one of the thinking is that 
you know, using the work and the expertise that we have on divestment, we can ramp up our campaign to the next level and talk about financing, direct financing. So, I mean, like we know the fossil fuel industry needs uh, loans, needs insurance, needs a lot of things to operate. Uh, and the idea is to sort of to take the same model that we use in the divestment or similar model. Uh, so it means like to do it, to do it decentralized and use the power of the grassroots and go after those banks or institutions that actually fueling the fossil fuel industry and demand them to just, you know, do that. Um, so it, obviously, I mean, like that's not new. I mean, like there are a few organizations that are already doing that work in different places. Uh, I think the uniqueness is about 350 will be that we will do that through the uh, grassroots and through the network that we have, uh, not uh, sort of through lobbying and, and direct conversation with uh, with those institutions. Okay, Yossi Caden, very inspiring to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, I'm delighted to say that we are now joined in our studio by Catherine Howarth, who runs an organisation called Share Action. And Catherine and I have known each other a long time. She was at a fantastic organisation called West London Citizens, which became Citizens UK uh, when we first met. And she runs uh, Share Action. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Tell us a bit about Share Action and what you do. Share Action is building people power in the investment industry, um, particularly you know, millions and millions and millions of people are pension savers now. And that gives um, them, you know, in a way, quite a bit of power because what happens with their pension contributions when they disappear out of a paycheck once a month is it goes to buy, you know, the biggest companies in the world, shares in the biggest companies in the world. And um, we're all interested in what the biggest companies in the world get up to. So that's the sort of space that we're working in, trying to um, democratise the pension system. I hate that word, whoops. But it's um, trying to make sure that the decisions made in that system are really useful for everyday working people. We do a lot on climate change. I know we're going to talk about that, but it's not the only issue, you know, that, that companies as employers, companies in the way they operate all over the world make a difference to us and um, we just feel the whole system needs to be more accountable. And the truth is, as we've discussed a number of times, you know, most people are very passive when it comes to their pension in terms of where it's invested. They are, but, you know, they're waking up. and uh, You're waking them up. Yeah. You're the wake-up Yeah, I'm, the, I'm this person that comes at 7am in the morning and um, shakes everyone exactly. on the, on the shoulder. Do people have control and agency over, over their own pensions then? Well, very little. The system is totally designed to um, make sure that you, first of all, don't know what happened to the money and that if you do know and you do care, you're kept well away from any of the important decisions. But that is changing little by little. So, you know, some of the things I'm really proud of that we've won are some changes that require pension funds to tell you where they put the money and how they voted at the important AGMs of the companies in in the portfolio. So uh, we're beginning to win some more rights to information and influence, but it's not a system designed to empower the ordinary person. There's a long way to go. And we're talking on the podcast about divestment and the particular issue of climate change. Tell us a little bit about Share Action's role in this whole thing. Sure. Well, we, as you can sort of tell from our name, Share Action, the big thing we're into is shareholder activism. So we buy shares in companies and then we 
pop up at their annual general meeting. To cause trouble. To, that's one way of putting it, to, you know, ask some constructive questions of the board. And the amazing thing about it over the years, we've been doing this a long time, is that little by little we've secured as allies in that process some very, very big uh, and powerful investors. and Including the Church of England, who we just heard from. Church of England and um, Nest, which is the um, big pension provider set up by the government for pensions automatic enrolment. They're actually an amazing scheme, really engaged with um, what's going on um, in the companies in the Nest portfolio. And um, so we, we've slowly built some great relationships with big investors. And when we make the case to companies for change, we've got some quite um, big friends. And what's like. the leverage that you have? Is it that you make them feel uncomfortable at these AGMs by asking difficult questions? Or is it that you say we're going to take the money out of this company and, and put it elsewhere? Well, the, the take the money away threat is... Um, is a real and interesting one. And obviously, the divestment movement is built on it. Um, But it's not the only threat. So the great thing about being a shareholder is you've got some voting powers, you can decide who's on the board of the company. And that's why it's important to have really big shareholders working with you because they have a lot of votes. You're the sort of foot in the door, You, you you're not buying billions of pounds worth of shares, you you get a share or two to get your foot in the door and persuade the big investors to then support your resolutions, basically. That's right. So we are, I think, I'm proud of being probably the best example of <laughs> of how much power you can wield with a single share. It's not so much a threat. It's also about building the so-called business case for change. So on climate change, great example, it's um, genuinely quite risky to just proceed with business as usual. Um, and uh, we point that out. Um, some of the, you know, again, campaigns I'm really proud of, the work we've been doing in the banking sector – where even though banking is sort of, in a way, it's a low-carbon industry because it's just a few sort of glassy tower blocks here and there in business districts or, you know, branches on high streets. But actually, the lending decisions of the banking sector probably make it one of the most important industries to to engage with um, if you're interested in climate change. Because every time they finance a coal mine or every time they decide instead to finance some wind turbines um, in the North Sea or something, that that is a really material difference to our climate outcomes so we've really been pushing uh the banks and bringing other big shareholders with us and and we we make the case that it's just unwise financially to be lending to coal and um we've been quite successful in that because it is unwise and just to explain the unwise part of it there's this sort of concept isn't there of stranded assets so you know basically if if governments change their practices on climate change it won't be possible, whatever you think of the ethics of it, it won't be possible to use these so-called assets like coal and so on. And therefore, you'll have lent money or you'll be invested in things and you'll lose your money, basically. It's a bad investment. That, that's the sort of simple bad way of putting it. It's a bad yeah. investment. Exactly. Yeah. And just on climate, tell us about some of the activism you've been doing and some of the change that you've seen. I mean, how much change are we seeing from companies, do you think? There's the activism that's targeting companies that are energy users and then there's the activism targeting companies like glencore shell Fossil BP, fuel companies. that are the energy providers yeah. um, and what about that well, how what progress is being made on those would you say well you know that is um 
it's work in progress. A tougher nut to crack. <laughs> it's a tough nut. There is nut, this Church know. of England decision around Glencore, which we've heard Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Um, uh, we, we've you been very, that? very closely involved in the work um, behind the scenes on that. So very proud of that. Uh, you know, we, I've been, I first filed a shareholder resolution at BP and Shell back in 2010. So um, we're nine years on and they're slowly swinging around, um, but it is slow progress. And actually the, the pace of change in the fossil fuel industry is is absolutely not commensurate with the climate challenge right now. So we need much more pressure. And by the way, the source of that pressure needs to be ordinary people, you know, like those that listen to this wonderful podcast that have a pension and think, yes, you know what, I don't want my pension invested in the companies that are still not with it. So what can people do then? If you listen to this and you've got a pension and you want to feel like you can wield some kind of pension power. Yeah, well, you what you should absolutely do is um, make sure and write to your pension fund to make sure that they're in something called the Climate Action 100 Plus investor group, which is the biggest um, coalition of investors around the world acting on and climate change. And that's tens of trillions of pounds, yes? It is. Um, dollars, rather. Yeah, yeah. well, p- pounds, pounds and dollars. And dollars. Yep. <laughs> And um, you should make sure that the people that make decisions on your pension fund board have had some training on climate change. You'd be amazed how few of the pension trustees and the board members have actually really learned about the science. And once they do, that really makes a difference. If you really fancy getting involved in this, then get in touch with Share Action because we train people to go to these company AGMs and ask the questions. Oh, great. We so, had the most brilliant time at BP's AGM last year. Not everyone <laughs> says that about BP's AGM. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It was really, they, they always get a lot of activists go yeah. to the AGM and they've always held it in London. I think they thought they'd shake off the activists by moving the AGM to Birmingham and um, not a bit of it. Um, we had a brilliant training up in Birmingham and... and we were, you know, half, what happened? we were virtually half the room. We had question after question, putting the board really well designed question. We prepare people, and they're really well researched questions. You know, they're and not is it joking just temp- about here. It's it's really is it temporary serious. embarrassment for the board, or is it more than that? Well, I mean, the answers they give are very telling, and and, yeah. and they're public. You know, they're they're a lot of journalists are also in the room, and um, yeah, the, what the board say at the AGM is on the record. It's a very important um, public statement. And if people want to know what they should. Because, you know, people might be thinking, well, OK, I like the idea, but what do I actually say in my letter to the pension fund? And da 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 That's all that information oh, yeah. on your website. Come to the Share Action website or just give us a call. Um, we would like to be inundated. <laughs> Is this route through the pension funds and so on? Does divestment slash shareholder activism work? Yes, uh, I think it's quite amazing what's going on. By the way, it's not the only thing. We also need, of course we need, bold action from governments. But ultimately, most of the world's emissions are tied up with um, the fossil fuel industry. By the way, also the agricultural sector is a whopping uh, producer of um, greenhouse gas emissions. These are industries where people have commercial interests and operations and it's hugely important and necessary that the powerful financiers and investors in those companies are not only pushing for change, but being held to account about how they, the kind of dialogue they have with the companies on this. We need more pension funds and others signing up. Well, we just need to get bigger. I mean, by the way, it's like more reasons to be cheerful. The whole thing has just been taking off in such a dynamic way. Like, 
you know, 10 years ago, responsible investment was like a bit of a joke in yeah. the investment industry. It is not a joke anymore. Um, you know, the biggest fund manager in the world is BlackRock. And they are marketing like crazy how good they are on this. By the way, they're not perfect. But the minute they're saying how important it all is, we kind of got them in a useful place. And then, you know, a lot of the work that we do at Share Action is trying to really get under the skin of what's really going on because there is a lot of greenwashing in the investment industry now. And uh, and that needs to be um, exposed. So that's part of what's what's needed. But we also need stronger regulations and laws um we're seeing that in the uk brilliant um some really important developments from whether it's you know the bank of england governor mark carney but also the financial conduct authority the pensions minister it's sort of all happening and then it's very much happening at eu level in fact europe is really leading the world on this agenda i mean we lead the world on loads of things don't we but um it is a global industry finance and we're doing some things in Europe which I think are having a big ripple effect in a very positive way. We have a thing on the podcast called The Jeffocracy where I am installed as a benign but very hands-off supreme leader. If I was to make you Minister for Pensions but so off, off you go, you have autonomy, what is the first thing you do on day one? I think what we need is to really open up the space so people are not... Um, in sort of this enforced ignorance around what happens to their pension funds. That's just not fair. So I would like to see a law that requires pension funds to ask you your views uh, about climate change and sustainability risks so that that can be built into the way that they invest on your behalf. So uh, I think that's totally doable, um, absolutely necessary. By the way, one of the byproducts of that is that people might actually think, do you know what, I actually do need to maybe buy one less coffee at Costa and put a bit more money in my pension because, you know, that's the other side of pensions is, is um, saving enough for our old age. But along the way, we do not want to be invested in things that are destroying the potential for a serene and happy retirement. And, and so it's joining the dots and, and making uh, people able to, to, to have a voice in the system. Catherine Howe, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. So what did you think? I think it's exciting. It's exciting to think that we have some degree of influence over these big corporations. Um, I quite like the idea of shareholder action, going to an AGM, making people squirm, asking some difficult questions. I see you at an AGM. I mean, I think what is fascinating is that this is a movement, the divestment movement that started, you know, on a few campuses in the United States. And now it is a multi-trillion dollar campaign, a version of shareholder engagement and divestment. You've got the Church of England involved. You've got the Norwegian state sovereign wealth company involved. So there is, I mean, there's definitely a reason to be cheerful. Definitely. And I I would definitely like to see somebody using this kind of power with my pension, if I had a pension. Which you don't have, which is another subject. I mean, I don't want to be a downer. Oh, no. So Bill McKibben, who founded 350.org, and you know what? Do you know why it's called 350.org? I don't. So 350 was the attempt to sort of stop dangerous climate change by stabilising the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at 350 parts per million, which is why it's called 350.org. It's currently somewhere around 410 parts per million. Okay, but that that's not the bad part, actually. I mean, that is a bad part, but it's... I mean, he wrote this piece saying winning slowly is the same as losing. And I think the thing I take out of this, and I think this is where Yossi is right, 
is what you've got to avoid in this. And I'm not saying subject to this is sort of greenwash. You know, oil companies saying, oh, yes, you know, we're going to do this heroic assumptions because they've got these sometimes they have these heroic assumptions that says carbon dioxide emissions carry on going up for like 20 years and then they sort of fall magically and it's all all right. We don't have that time. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we are joined by Beardy Man. Hello. 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 How are you doing well? Now, for people who aren't familiar with your oeuvre, and I think Ed is in- included in this, um, I am right in sort of thinking that most of what you do is is musical in nature. Yeah. I'm primarily a musical man, and I do musical things, often with my face, kind of beatboxy, singy things. Sometimes I use electronics, but I haven't got any electronics, so I could demonstrate very briefly by going... Yeah. Wow. Go on, Ed. Your, your turn. <laughs> that Hit is it. Brilliant. Yeah. Do you want to do it again? Um, <laughs> do you want to do it again? Sorry, I'm full of. I'm honestly stuff. making myself so cheerful. That is absolutely brilliant. We definitely want to record this. Uh, <laughs> uh, is that a, that's all then? But uh, everyone just needs to beatbox and you'll be super cheerful. Honestly, I'm like super cheerful. That is definitely that is so really good. Go on, it? yeah, you go again. I, I can't, I, I, like, I like the skills. What's the sort of equivalent of, you know, plink, plank, plonk on the piano? Well, you can say <laughs> boots and cats with none of the vowels and then you, you're sort of, you've done it. That's it. Give it a go. Boots and cats. And boots, boots, cats, boots, boots and cats. Boots and cats. But cats and <laughs> you sound quite no Germanic. Vowels. No vowels. Still got some vowels in there. Just work on eliminating those vowels, and you're there. Butts and cats. Okay, let's try something simpler. That's good. No. Yes, I just thought Ed made a band to beatbox. Bang it. Wow. That was a moment. <laughs> That's it. That was a moment. A whole new career lies ahead of you now. Hi, it's brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, nice to meet you. Cheers. Bye. Oh, that is brilliant. Yeah. Let's just do it again. That, that, the one I did. What, how'd you do it? Oh, wow. That's there a cello. That's yeah. sick. We should take this on the road. We definitely should. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've, you've got it, guys. How did you get into it? <laughs> we discourage most children from doing extra vocal sounds, but I wouldn't listen to reason. I just carried on going. For me, when I was a kid, I was watching Police Academy and things like that oh, and realising that you could do mouth noises. And so can you thing. do all like the helicopter and the machine gun? I'm going to try. <laughs> machine gun? Everyone's got a different... Wow. Can you do a machine gun? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There you go. This is a revelation to you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I'm sort of incredulous. I didn't even know this. I sort of knew, I've never obviously heard the term, but I, I, you know, I didn't sort of engage with it. If you'd have known it was there, you could have been. I, 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 I can't say, the thing I love the most is your helicopter. <laughs> Can you do the I, helicopter I used, again? Um, I mean, that is... I can also do a World War One biplane, which is, again, completely useless skill. Nice. <laughs> it's nice, but it's pointless. Why? Why? 
Imagine if you'd have done that at PMQs. That would have stopped them dead in their tracks. They'd be like, what? Totally Do that again. True. Or the helicopter. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. They'd have scattered. Or the machine gun. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean any, any of them. Yeah, or if after you've made a, a really banging yeah. point, they can be like, mm, 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 <laughs> like and then you win the debate. As a rebuttal, the right honourable Ed Miliband, you stand up and then just start barking. <laughs> and what are they going to say to that? Well, they, the, you can't come back. There wouldn't be an answer. No. Yeah. That, and then you'd win again. Just winning. <laughs> winning solutions. Yeah, I'm not sure about again, actually. We've gloss over that. Uh, <laughs> All right, you've, uh, you've brought along some ideas. I've brought along I've ideas. Brought some noises. What's, uh, what's the first one? Um, well, so I've got two ideas, really. The first, I think, is eminently achievable. So both ideas are to do with switching, because I think these are times of change. We need to adapt to that, and we need to lead the change instead of be changed by this tempestuous world. So the first one is about switching the earth off and on again. And this is eminently achievable. We have the technology to do it. Is this like a reset button? The reset button for the for the earth. So It tends you, to work on most electronic equipment. It does. And there's so much electronics on the earth, why not just do it to the whole planet? Basically, you take a rocket, which we know we can do, land it on an asteroid, which we know we can do, give it a little bit of a boost, maybe attach a solar sail to it, so it's got just the right trajectory, and then you've got this large, maybe 20-kilometre-wide, iron-rich object um, careening towards the earth. Um, it'll smash into it, it'll extinguish most surface life, but you won't get that pesky radioactive fallout of a thermonuclear apocalypse, which would be deleterious to the recovery period after the catastrophe. And the rate we're going... We're, so we're destroying... We're destroying all life on the planet, but we're going to anyway. So my point is that we're going Get to Get it over anyway. and done with. Get it over and done with. In it's, a much cleaner way. It's less cruel... If you just rip that plaster off and just wipe the slate clean, because you'll still there'll still be life. They'll still have microbes and extremophiles living in the Earth's crust. So there'll still be. Isn't there a bit of a life. flaw in this plan, which is that when you restart, even a sort of hard reset on your iPhone or whatever, you can sort of store the settings in the iCloud. Mm. Whereas, what, what's the sort of equivalent of the iCloud in this? Well, there isn't one. Life I'm worried will about continue. the sort of the. It'll be mm. different. Life will be different. You'll have brand new, complex life evolving. Evolution will go off in a different direction. Yeah, it's not for us to decide. You know, we keep trying to control the world. We need to stop global warming. Yeah, maybe. Or just, you know, press the reset button and start again. You won't have any problems anymore. You know, you won't have to worry about well, what do we do after it. You, you won't it feels be there a bit gloomy to me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what about all the nice things we've made, like card- cardigans and Stockport? I mean, all those things have gone, right? They will be, but there'll be no one there to miss them, which I think is really uplifting. You know, God. they'll just be the sweet release of death. And that's, that's dark. <laughs> it, it's fairly dark, but I think it's preferable to I no hope you deal Brexit. I hope you don't tell that to your kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't listen to this podcast, so it's fine. No. No. Um, but th- that we can do, but we shouldn't. Um, but uh, so you don't think we should hard reset the Earth by smashing a, a, an asteroid into it? I mean, we could. Right, the thing. We, right, we could do. There's a lot of it's things we could do. It's an option. I don't think it's necessarily the best one, but we could do it. I mean, we're, we're we're a hard audience, but I think it's sort of a little bit extreme for me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're lo- we're looking for things to be cheerful about, and basically, you're asking us to be cheerful about well, extinction, you know, different <laughs> extinction, but different forms of life might evolve. Just like yeah, they might have three ears. That's new and exciting. I think that's really cool. You yeah. Never, yeah, you never know. Well, there'll be giant caterpillars. I think we saved mold. that for the sort of third term of the <laughs> Jeffocracy, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's you need plan. to sort of really 
kind of get your feet under the table and sort of <laughs> win the win the trust of the electorate yeah. before, before embarking on that, don't you think? Yeah, I don't think, I it's, think it's And it's not a vote winner. No, I sort of feel it's your sort of poll tax equivalent. <laughs> you know. Wait till you get your foot in the door. Yeah. And I just landed on him. Yeah, okay, I think so. Yeah. yeah. All right, what else you got then? So the second one um, is not so achievable, but it's definitely something we should do. Well, I hope it's slightly less sort of extinction oriented it's way better it's it's really dull but it could solve all the world's problems and doesn't need to have anyone be wiped out by an asteroid good so um basically we should switch to a party list system and i know that we tried electoral reform and it didn't work but that's only because people campaigned against it. But if we did switch to a party list system instead of first past the post and make every government department a cross-party entity with membership proportionally reflective of the vote, perhaps even having a voting system whereby party lists are more thorough, wherein you vote for a party to represent each government department for your geographical area, you might find that the sort of partisan squabbling which engulfs every single part of government and every single part of life explain the, the media last, landscape explain the last bit again the, so yeah i said this is really the, dull what's it's the party, so dull what's the part thing about the geographical area well so with the party list system yeah. you have larger constituencies right um so it's like York, the region of yorkshire right something like that yeah um and with the party list system you list instead of the individual the you want you list the party that you want and then you get government departments filled up in the order that the party dictates so basically you're voting for a party instead of an individual it's a, it's just a, it's an alternative voting so you're system. voting for a sort of coalition you would end up with um lots of cross-party squabbling within government departments you have one vote you would have one vote yes but it's, it, it, it means, I mean, basically, what I'd like to do is yeah. get rid of all political parties because I think they're a problem. But you can't really do that because you can't stop people wanting to form them. And maybe you shouldn't want people to not form political parties. Maybe you need to design democratic systems around this natural predisposition to coagulate. But we are interest. unusually not having coalitions. And part of that, I think, is the first-past-the-post system. Mm. But do you think <clears> the first-past-the-post is 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 good it's good for the Labour party (laughs) is it yeah i mean isn't the the, aren't both main parties interested in preserving it because you end up with one or the other instead i quite like the continental systems where you become second and then become the prime minister (laughs) yeah Uh, uh, Yeah. there was a sketch from alvida's aim pet that got promoted by um both sides of the debate when it was the uh, i think it was the alternative vote system that was uh there was a referendum about and um, this sketch that was cited by both sides as a reason that you both should and shouldn't have voting reform was um, this sketch where they're trying to figure out what colour they should paint their room and they decide to go with the alternative vote system and it ends up being um, that none of them get what they want but they all get their second choice. Um, and you could argue that that's a good thing or a bad thing. You could say that democracy is the, the sort of best of all the worst solutions or you could say that you don't like that that's what it is. Here's what I like, the breadth of your ideas. I did Thanks. not think very dull. that was where you were going to go no, after really the asteroid dull. idea. It's, yeah, it's yeah. quite good macro and micro. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and just to be clear, you're not presenting us with an either or option. 
Well, it's slightly either or. (laughs) (laughs) Either mass extinction or... (laughs) Or this party list. um, It's covering all the bases. Mm. I mean, it's it's such a divisive world at the moment. And now political party membership has become almost religious in its fervour. And the only way to dismantle that or to make people climb down off these kind of opinion mountains is probably to adapt our democratic systems in some way. Do you not think that urgent reform is needed otherwise there'll be a bloody revolution i need a diagram really to be honest it's really boring yeah i've been thinking way too much about it what about the german additional member system whereby you have people elected directly in constituencies i think that's 50 percent, and then you have the sort of top up to make it proportional to the overall vote that sounds cool i just think a good robust debate about voting systems is what we need because people are getting so disenchanted they want to feel that and then we could have Something a referendum, else. and they obviously solve everything, <laughs> don't they? I mean, they are absolutely the panacea for but, problems. I think we've shown yeah, that. Yeah. But that was a problem of democratic design. There was a yes-no answer, and remain was a very simple, yeah. clear thing. But then leave wasn't actually an option. They should have had five different options on there, or had a 60% threshold like they do in many referenda. So it's not that democracy's broken, it's just that it needs little tweaks and little fixing. Mm. Yeah. I, it was very dull. It was no, it's good. It was good. It was good. It was, it was it's serious. Waiting. <laughs> As was the. I mean, there's nothing, nothing more serious, nothing more no. grave, in fact, than the asteroid yeah. suggestion. <laughs> I've still one other question though. Yep. Can you give us another noise? If people want to uh, en- enjoy your uh, work, can they come and see you? They can see your stuff online. No, you're not allowed. Right. Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, look me up on the internet. I'm there. I do all kinds of stuff, and I'm working on an album at the moment of music. Um, none of it about voting systems. So you'll love it. It's really entertaining. What would your noise be for first past the post? And what would your noise be for the additional member system? I think first past the post would be... An additional member might be... That's very good. Beardy man, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, guys. It's been great. Bye. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, I think you've got a serious future ahead of you as a beatboxer. Should Definitely. you should you ever want... I mean, I know public service is at your core. Is there no way you could combine it with your current job? No. A bit of beatboxing on the benches? Beatboxing on the side. <laughs> I think... I think you don't think so? I think that'll be hard. Shall I thank our guests? Yes. Why don't I thank our guests? I'd like to thank Catherine Howarth, Adam Matthews and Yossi Caden. And I, I will definitely think about the ethics of my pension should I ever get one. Good. And thanks to Beardy Man for giving us the gift of beatboxing. Put some cats. Emma Caution produces our podcast uh, with research by Joel Pierce. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dance. Ed Seed composed the music and the artwork was designed by Emily, Emily Power. Power. Well, he's been Bootson. He's been Katzen. And these have been... Reasons to be boots and cats and boots and cats. And <laughs> boots, boots and cats. Boots and cats. <laughs> boots and. <laughs>